as a founder or an owner in a small, very small firm, you just got to realize that you are the sales engine of the company. Welcome to the Big Time Podcast, where we have honest conversations with industry professionals who have advice that's right for you. In this edition of the Big Time Podcast, we speak with Ryan Gray, the CEO and product design expert of SGW DesignWorks. SGW offers full mechanical product design and engineering, and today we get to learn about the fascinating steps they've taken along the way on the path to growth. Welcome, I'm your host, Alexander, and I'm excited to be joined by my guest today, Ryan Gray, who's based in Boise, Idaho, of SGW Design Works. They started in 2008, and as a team of 18, I'm excited today, Ryan, to hear more about your journey that you've been on, and I'm sure the many lessons, lessons and, that you've learned over the years. Welcome, though. Good to have you on. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Glad to be here. So take me back to the beginning, 2008. Uh, what kicked it off? Did you say, all right, I'm, I'm just ready to st start my own firm? Yeah, so I uh, I started this firm with two other individuals who were really really talented guys that I met in corporate America. So the three of us were working in a Fortune 500 business, doing product development and technology development um, in the building products sector. So specialty structural composites for building with essentially, and the three of us really liked working together on big complex high budget projects, and decided we should do something on our own. Um, and, and we, we, at the same time, we realized there was a real gap out there at the time where we in our development teams couldn't find external groups to go to that could come in and help us with our development efforts. We couldn't find people that were, you know, groups of machine designers. We couldn't find people that were groups of product development experts, uh, in composites or in various types of products. And we thought, gosh, that's a gap we can fill. So we decided to do that. Um, started the company in 2008, which was not the easiest time to get a company off the ground. Um, but nonetheless, we, we started by kind of leveraging our own Rolodexes and, and you know, reaching, reaching out to people that we had worked with in the past in our various professional capacities and got our initial few projects going and um, started to see that the model could work. And, yeah, we learned a lot along the way. We did a lot wrong early on. Um, and it's things have things have progressed a lot between 2008 and today for us. I, I, I can only imagine that. Just a frame of reference here: the the customers that you serve, who who are they again? They're yeah. So the customers that we serve are are. I'm going to start broad, and we can narrow in from there. But broadly, it's companies that make or market a manufactured product. So even though I met my co-founders working in in the structural, you know, composites industry. We don't even really work much in that industry at all. Never really have. We're we're, we're working with uh, con consumer product companies. We're working with sporting goods companies. We're working with companies that are producing IoT, you know, connected devices, phone connected devices. We're working with companies that make industrial equipment, um, specialized electronics products. You name it. And they're coming to you for what specifically? If you had just like twenty yeah. seconds, just share exactly what you're doing then. Yeah, they come to us uh, to develop products for them, meaning to take uh, a need they identify through feasibility analysis, concept development, industrial design, figuring out what the product is going to look like and be shaped like, engineering, figuring out how the product is going to work, then optimizing that for manufacturing. Um, and, and, and throughout that, doing a lot of prototyping. So we're constantly prototyping. And you know, if you walk around our office, you see the very first 
of many products on people's desks in our office. Everything from firearms to uh, desktop charging devices for uh, industrial handheld computers to uh, you know things you would see in a retail store, checkout point of sale systems, all kinds of, of stuff. You mentioned earlier, you decided to make this, this leap because you saw a gap, an opportunity that wasn't being met, right? Like you didn't find other people serving that exact need. Did I hear that yeah. correct? Yep. Yep. Was it as simple as like you jump in, you got your first client and and you're like, wow, okay, yeah, this is clicking. This is perfect. Everyone is needs us. They're they're coming to us. Um to a certain degree, yes, but that was short lived. So yeah, we found it was pretty easy to shake the first few projects loose, but when it when it came time to really grow the business and hire people and have a more steady pipeline of, of clients and projects it got much more difficult. 2020 hindsight is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. So if, you, if looking back, can you, what were some of the um, the things you would not do again when it comes to, okay, we got to try this, we got to try this to, to be able to increase sales, get new leads. What didn't work and, and you, lessons learned from that? Man, uh, so many things. Um, bad hiring decisions early on um, mm. was something that really was painful for us. Um, along with this realization that we needed to extend our, our reach and, and become more visible. We brought on a, a business development salesperson early on, um, I think in about year two, and um, just was not the right person. So number one, we were new at hiring, so we didn't really know what we were doing when it came to identifying and hiring good people. Um, but maybe more importantly, it, it was just what we were asking of our salesperson was unclear and probably unattainable and unrealistic and was just it, burned. Just a mindset of, all right, we need more business, so let's hire somebody to just go find us more business, but left it fairly yeah. open-ended? Yeah, I mean, it was this failed assumption, and I should have known this because I had worked in sales you know, on and off prior to founding this company and prior to doing the development work I was doing when I founded this company. But basically, we brought in somebody and said, okay, here's what we do. Here are the companies we want to go after. We need this much business. Go. And um, not realizing that you need to coach more intentionally than that. You need to share what does and doesn't work more clearly than that. You need to be more engaged as a leader than that in order for somebody to be successful in a role like that. So if someone's starting up uh, their own firm in that first couple of years and they're like, we need more sales, what would you be saying? Is it take it as the owner to, to play more of an active sales role? Would you still suggest yeah. hiring a salesperson? Yeah, I think it's fine to hire a salesperson, but just um, as a founder or an owner in a small, very small firm, you just got to realize that you are the sales engine of the company. And even if you bring in a business development person, that person is really going to be supporting your efforts more so than um, taking the lead on the sales efforts. You know, in a small firm, companies two, three, four people big, the founders are the face of the company. And the founders are going to be who the customers look at to figure out if they're going to invest money with that company or not, if they're going to trust what you're selling, if they're going to trust that you can do what needs to be done. So you gotta, you just got to accept that and live that. Hey, 
switching gears here because one thing is to have the team to to execute you know projects, but you also need the the customers. And we were talking about that a little bit before. How have you changed from from two thousand eight to today of how you find and really more actually bid on projects or or approach yeah. that? Yeah, finding customers has been evolving a lot. Um, in my opinion, it's getting more difficult than ever. Um, our our little niche has gotten more competitive over the years. You know, there used to be a handful of firms across the U.S. that do what we do, and now there are many. Um, I believe we're better than most of them. Some of them are certainly good, um, as good as us, but uh, most are not. Um, but how do you tell the world that? You know, how, yeah, do you, how do you differentiate yourself out there? Yeah, yeah, and and. There are two ways you can go about this in my mind. One is to get into the world of RFQs, and that world does exist with what we do, where you're responding to formal requests for proposals or requests to quote. And the problem with that, as we've, anybody who's responded to an RFQ knows, is that number one, the assumptions that went into the, to the request for quote are incorrect. So what you end up quoting is incorrect, and it just becomes a matter of who has the lowest number at that point, and can convince the, the, the purchasing agent that they understand the thing well enough to do the job. Um, but what's missing from that is the relationship. And when it comes down to it, service relationship, service businesses like ours are relationship driven. And if we just you know knock down RFQ after RFQ, we're gonna find ourselves driving our, our, our rates way down. We're not gonna be successful creating relationships because being constrained by that type of a contract doesn't allow for the kind of creative development we do anyway. Um, and you start off with this document that we all know is incorrect as the basis for the relationship that you know is gonna become a point of contention later. So we don't, we don't even respond. We don't even chase hard quote projects and we don't chase competitive quote projects anymore at all. Is there any uh, lessons learned in the past of where you know, okay, this is going to be a good client or this one's not going to be. Is, like, is there any indicators or warning signals for you? Yeah, for sure. So um, over the years, we've done a lot of work with startup companies. Um, this isn't solely a startup thing, but it is maybe more prevalent in startups. Um, the biggest red flag, the two biggest red flags that we see are number one, when somebody comes to us exploring a project and they expect that they're going to commercialize a product and only spend $10,000 on development and engineering and design. And um, it's just not how it works. You know, companies that have commercialized products successfully know that it's one or two orders of magnitude too low. Um, mm. And uh, so that's, that's, that's a really early conversation topic we bring up with people. These days, startups make up a smaller percentage of our business. You know, we're working more with either emerging or established businesses. Um, but even with that group, we still sometimes come across people that are interested in doing a project with us, but haven't have other unrealistic expectations or just don't know what they're asking for. Um, one of the ways that that shows itself is if a company comes to us and they want us to develop a product and they plan on having, say, their own internal team manufacture the product, which is that in itself is fine, really good actually. But as we explore, we find that that internal manufacturing team has never manufactured a product like this, doesn't have anybody on board that, that has done anything adjacent. We can feel pretty certain at that point that even if we do the best design and the best engineering in the world, there's nobody to receive that internally with that client. So they're not gonna be successful with the output we provide them. 
from the beginning time to SNA where you, you, you were finding the people, you were bidding on the projects, you were doing the work, um, and to fast forward to today, how has is it evolved the way you manage projects and manage, and keep visibility over all that's going on? Um, uh, the key to that is hiring amazing people. Um, we're not huge, but even the size we are, we have too many projects, usually between 15 and 20 at a time going in parallel. It's too many for any one of us to have over, oversight over every one of those. So the key is you need to have people on your team that you know are doing the right thing for the client, doing the right thing for the business, and are able to have tough conversations and, and coach and manage and guide the clients and the younger team members. It, it comes down to delegation, or as we, as we say in our language, um, lead, manage, and be accountable for, um, LMA is what we call it. Mm. And um, you've got to either hire people or cultivate people to be able to take those things on. Any secrets for, for good delegation that you found have worked as you've built up the team? Clarity. Um, yeah, you have to provide clarity to the people you're delegating to, which is the opposite of micromanagement. So hmm. they have to very clearly understand your expectations. It, it doesn't mean that they need to be given full-on directions on how to do something, but they need to understand whether they have free reign to go down a path or whether you expect for them to follow, you know, protocols A, B, and C in doing it, and then giving them the space to go and do their best, um, <clears throat> as opposed to, you know, being a helicopter over them. We tried that for a while, where we would kind of delegate, but then hover, and that doesn't work. People don't flourish. People don't go try things, and they don't go find their own management style or leadership style. If someone, especially a co-founder, is hovering over them, how do you measure success? Like all these things are happening, things are rolling along and you're tracking things, but what, is, what does success look for you and, and how do you measure that? Yeah, we've got a bunch of metrics that we track, but maybe the most, um, the three most important are every, so we use a really defined metric tracking system that we as a leadership team look at every week with updated data. There are like 25 um, elements that we look at in that every week, but some of the most important ones are every week we have a goal of zero unsatisfied customers. And that's a squishy thing. But if anybody is working on a project with an unsatisfied customer, that zero becomes a one. And we as a leadership team are obligated to go figure out how to fix it. Um, number two, know what we call team issues or unsatisfied team members. In a service business like ours, an unsatisfied team member is just as problematic as an unsatisfied client. Um, we've got to be totally in step and in sync and creating an environment where our team members can do the best work of their careers every day. And so that's that's critical. If we have somebody that's you know, having a problem, they're overworked, they're getting burnt out, they're in some dispute internally, that's a that's an internal uh, you know, uh, employee health issue, team health issue, and we gotta go address that. When you look, if you were to go back to yourself, um, 10, 11, 12, 13, how many years now? It's just 2008 years ago. It was a few yeah. years ago. Uh, and tell yourself you know, just one thing that you know now, what would that be? It would be, man, don't worry about the revenue. Worry about the people. If you get the people part right, the revenue is going to follow. Um, I used to, I, I also, just like most probably small business 
owners, small business CEOs. I run the books for our businesses. And so for years, I would fixate on revenue and margin. And of course, it's important. We need revenue and margin to keep our businesses running and doing what we do. But I would look at that as like the leading most important metric. I used to do that like consistently. And now I just, I've totally shifted that. And I, I, I still definitely look at that, but I don't, I don't drive based on that. I drive based on what my team is doing and how we're behaving towards each other and our clients. Knowing that if we get that right, the model is in place where the numbers will work out. Thank you so much, Ryan, for, for sharing the journey that you've been on. I know it's actually just a piece of it, and you guys are still have lots more to uh, the journey ahead, but it's been yeah. great to have you on the show. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, anytime. We'll see you all on the next episode of the Big Time Podcast. For more info, go to podcasts.bigtime.net and be sure to subscribe to the Big Time Podcast to get notified when our next episode goes live.